Father, we thank you for this time together. We thank you um, for the giftings that you've given each of us in the body of Christ that you saw fit to give some uh, giftings in areas that you have given none of that to others. Uh, administration is high on my thinking right now and I just thank you for those around us who are gifted in that area and are planning ahead and, and, and doing things that encourage cohesiveness in, the, in this group and in this church. And I, I pray that you continue to bless those who are behind the scenes working to build us up as a body, um, to build our community around you and providing some, some structure to do that. Lord, I thank you for your word that you um, have seen fit to condescend to us and provide for us um, an objective truth that we can read, study, ponder, discuss, and that it centers around the personal work of Jesus, who he is and what he's done and who we are in relation to him, either in covenant or rebelling against that covenant. And Father, I pray that as we move through the passage today, we, we are again reminded of His beauty, of His glory, of His holiness, and the great gift that we have, that You have made Him our head, as it says Ephesians, that You gave Him as head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. What a glorious gift that we have in Your Son. And we thank you for his righteousness that is foreign to us, that you've clothed us with. We thank you for his wisdom that we uh, must pursue and seek and, and um, are dependent upon your Holy Spirit. Um, we thank you for his body, that we have brothers and sisters in Christ who pray for us and are weeping as we weep and rejoicing as we rejoice and that we're getting better at that and that you are growing us in the, um, the one and others that we're given in the, in the New Testament. Be with us this morning as we, again, creep closer to your perfect design for the body of Christ. And we know that that effort is um, spurred on by your Spirit. And we pray for his presence here today and his wisdom and his discernment as we walk through the next passage in Exodus. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, we are moving forward. We're in chapter 39 in Exodus. And we are going through uh, another larger chunk, uh, verse 1 through verse 31 uh, in Exodus 39. And it's again this section of the book that deals with the construction uh, of both the tabernacle and then we saw the break in the materials and then now we're looking at the manufacture, the construction of the priestly clothing. Uh, there's a covering for the presence of God, then there's a covering for the people of God. And so we're walking through the construction of those things. Um, and our passage today, just as it was as we walked through the construction of the tabernacle, is a reiteration of what we studied in a previous chapter, chapter 28, except again the, the shift is from the function and the use of the clothing to the making of the clothing. So there's going to be some differences between the two passages, but it's based upon what the focus is. The focus is God gave the command, and here 
in this section, they're fulfilling the command that he gave. So let's look first uh, at, at verse 1 in chapter 39. We'll, we'll walk through this uh, piece by piece. It says, From the blue and purple and scarlet yarns, they made finely woven garments for ministering in the holy place. They made holy garments for Aaron as the Lord had commanded Moses. This first verse here should probably be read as an introductory to the entire section dealing with the priestly clothing. Why did he make them? Because the Lord had commanded them. Always a valid reason to do anything. Uh, what, what else? They're set apart. Okay, what it, and, and how, do, how do you know that? What does it say in the, in the verse? Holy garments for Aaron. Holy garments. Holy means set apart. Um, do you recall any additional reasons that they were made in the previous discussion on, the, on these priestly garments? Do you remember the additional reasons? Chapter 28, oh, I don't know, verse 2, perhaps. For beauty and for glory. Now, what does that mean? We talked about the, the priestly garments being made for, they were holy garments for beauty and for glory. What does that, what does that bring to mind? Why would that be something that is important to bring out? Now, holy means, we've already said, set apart. The, the, the glory, we talked that the, the Hebrew there means weighty. Uh, not meaning that they're wearing lots of clothes, but that it's sobering, it's important. Um, there's a seriousness about it. The beauty, the word there is applied to the finest jewels. Why is it important to characterize the, the priestly clothing in those three terms? Holy, beauty, glory. Do you remember back in early October when we went through this? Um, we had talked about that those attributes that God ascribes to these clothes were pictures of his own nature. Um, all three of them are attributes of God. They reflect God's character. Uh, Isaiah 6, 3, And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Uh, Numbers 14, uh, 21 says, But truly as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. Uh, Psalm 52, out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. You see just some examples there of, of it, attributing those kinds of characteristics to God himself. What does that tell you about this clothing? They're described in terms of the very character of God. What does that tell you about it? They're, it's symbolic of putting on the nature of wearing the nature of God. We, in New Testament terms, we, we think of it later in terms of Christ of putting on a foreign righteousness. But it's they're wearing the nature, a, a symbol of the nature of God. Um, how odd that must be to know what you did last night, knowing that you need atonement. And yet you have to stand before the people in the presence of God in the tabernacle wearing a representation of the nature of God, declaring something that you're not. Um, it starts with the ephod um, as, as the clothing. And, and, and this, again, is a close repeat of chapter 28, verses 6 through 14. 
let me read it real quickly. Um, starting verse 2, He made the ephod of gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen, and they hammered out gold leaf, and he cut it into threads to work into the blue and purple and the scarlet yarns, and into the fine twined linen in skilled design. They made for the ephod attaching shoulder pieces joined to it at its two edges, and the skillfully woven band on it was of one piece with it and made like it of gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen as the Lord had commanded Moses. Do you remember what the ephod was? We talked about it in chapter 28. What was the ephod? It yeah, it was, it was kind of a, a, an apron kind of thing that he wore across the chest. And it housed something. It, it carried something on it. Do you remember? The Uma Ufu. The, uh, the breast piece that we'll talk about in a minute and had inside of it, well, we, we think so. Could have been stone, could have been bone, could have been whatever. We don't know what it was. We assume stone. Um, but we're not really told much about the, the construction of the, 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 it's Urum and Thumum. Did I, do, did I say it right, Jacob? No. How did I say it? I'm not well, you got to. <laughs> I rely on smart yes. people to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> Ufu and tofu, whatever. Anyway, so there, there it is. The, the Urim and Thummim. But, we're not, but notice that in the discussion here, uh, well, first of all, what, what material does this remind you of? The material that, that he, they used to make the ephod is similar to other materials used to make something else. What is it? The inner veil. It's the same kind of material. So not only are they wearing for holy, uh, holy garments for beauty and glory, the, the character, the nature of God on them, it's also made from the same fabric that's made in the inner, you know, that, that inner veil kind of stuff. Again, <clears throat> putting on a symbol of the presence of God, knowing who they are. Uh, the materials for the ephod are the same as those for that inner sanctuary. Just like the inner sanctuary, it was skillfully woven, so too the ephod for the high priest. An additional element is here, though, that we didn't see in chapter 28. What is it? Do you remember them ever talking about this gold thread in, the, in chapter 28? I didn't, and I went back, and sure enough, it wasn't there. This is an additional element of how it was manufactured for beauty and for glory. Think of the work that's involved in hammering gold very thin, like a leaf, they call it in, in the ESV, and then cutting it, I don't know how difficult this is, cutting into thin thread-like strips, <laughs> and then taking this malleable gold and weaving it into the fabric, piece by piece by piece. Um, wood inlay is difficult to do. I can't imagine doing this. I mean, good grief, the, the detail and the time it would take. Why? Why would God call upon them to do this? What does that tell you about who God is? For beauty and for glory. It's worth the time. He's a creator. Um, he's an artist. 
He is the artist. And this, again, is used to display who he is. And they're wearing it. What's on the shoulders of, uh, of the ephod? Do you remember? It says it here. It's in the shoulders. Shoulder pieces. Shoulder pieces. I didn't read that far, did I? They made the onyx stones, in verse 6, they made the onyx stones enclosed in settings of gold filigree and engraved like the engravings of a signet according to the names of the sons of Israel. And he set them on the shoulder pieces of the ephod to be stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel as the Lord had commanded Moses. So you have these two onyx stones bearing the names of the sons of Israel. Notice it doesn't say the tribes of Israel. It says the names of the sons of Israel. Why would, why would there be that distinction? What's the difference? The tribes and sons. Do you remember? Two have been replaced. Two have been replaced. In what way? Who are the two? Joseph. Joseph's sons. Gad and Manasseh and Ephraim are the two that were, that were given for Joseph. Um, so, when we talk about in terms of tribes, those two would be involved. But here on the stones, it, there's kind of a wordplay, and we've talked about this before, between the words stone and sons. And it's, it's the sons themselves who are named on here. Joseph is named on there, not Ephraim and Manasseh. Um, these were stones of remembrance that the high priest appeared before God on behalf of the people uh, uh, of all the covenant. That this, he's wearing them, bearing them before God as he's doing the work of the high priest. I don't really know what the purpose of the ephod was. Um, we, we're not really given that functional purpose for it. It's used other places for... Uh, David used it to, to, to uh, discern the will of God, uh, presumably because of the breast piece containing those, um, those two stones. But um, we don't really know what it is. It just serves as a backdrop, really, for the breast piece of judgment. So let's look at that one, verse 8. He made the breast piece in skilled work, in the style of the ephod of gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twine linen. It was square. They made the breastpiece doubled, a span its length, and a span its breadth when doubled. And they set it in four rows, and they set in it four rows of stones. A row of sardis, topaz, and carbuncle was the first row. And the second row, an emerald, sapphire, and a diamond. And the third row, a jacinth, an agate, and an amethyst. And the fourth row, a barrel, an onyx, and a jasper. They were enclosed in settings of gold filigree. There were twelve stones with their names according to the names of the sons of Israel. They were like signets, each engraved with its name for the twelve tribes. And they made on the breastpiece twisted chains like cords of pure gold. And they made two settings of gold filigree and two gold rings and put the two rings on the two edges of the breastpiece. And they put the two cords of gold and the two rings at the edges of the breastpiece. 
They attached the two ends of the two cords to the two settings of the filigree. Thus they attached it in front to the shoulder pieces of the ephod. Then they made two rings of gold and put them at the two ends of the breast piece on its inside edge next to the ephod. And they made two rings of gold and attached them in front to the lower part of the two shoulder pieces of the ephod at its seam above the skillfully woven band of the ephod. And they bound the breast piece by its rings to the rings of the ephod with a lace of blue so that it should, be, so that it should lie on the skillfully woven band of the ephod and that the breast piece should not come loose from the ephod as the Lord had commanded Moses. There is a lot of textual real estate on the breast piece. I mean, of all the stuff that we're talking about, you've got, what, 13 verses here dealing with this little square that sits on the chest of the, of the high priest. Again, it's a close repeat of chapter 28, 15 through 28. And um, do you remember our, our discussion of the breast piece? It was called um, something else. Rather than just calling it the breast piece, it was called the breast piece of judgment. There was, a, there was a, um, an indication of its use. And here again, consistent with what he's doing of, of the construction of the, of the uh, material, uh, construction of the tabernacle and also of the, of the priestly robes, he's just talking about how they made it. And what does it recall then? These stones that are on the front. We talked about this again in October when we went through the breast piece. The stones that are on it remind us of the, the types of stones that were referenced in Eden. We saw uh, not only in Genesis but also in, in the prophets the reference to paradise before the fall. There was a recognition of certain stones and the same stones that are on the breast piece were the stones that are named by uh, Moses in Genesis referring to, to Eden. He doesn't mention the Urim and the Thummim. Assuming I'm saying that correctly and Jacob won't correct me. It doesn't matter. It you don't say Mexico, do you? You say Mexico. Depends on the mood that I'm in. <laughs> um, it doesn't mention them here. It doesn't mention them here at all. Again, this is because of the use of the breast piece was for discerning judgment, for discerning wisdom. And we're talking about just construction. Did I say construction? I meant to say construction. Why do you... Uh, well, the other thing here is notice that we see again as the Lord commanded Moses. It's repeating that again and again and again. Why do you think that is? We'll see it seven times in this passage by the time we're done. What does that mean? What is it trying to convey? Yes. Very small details. Even the thread that's to go into the ephod, he's, he's, he's interested in the details. And they're complying with them. And it confirms that seven times. Again, at number seven, we see oftentimes is used as a completeness, a, a nod to completeness and finished um, work. And, and you're seeing here 
a, con a confirmation that they're completing what was commanded by God on the mountain. The robe of the ephod. Okay, verse 22. He also made the robe of the ephod woven all of blue, and the opening of the robe in it was like the opening in a garment, with a binding around the opening, so that it might not tear. On the hem of the robe they made pomegranates of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen. They also made bells of pure gold and put the bells between the pomegranates all around the hem of the robe between the pomegranates. A bell and a pomegranate, a bell and a pomegranate around the hem of the robe for ministering as the Lord had commanded Moses. Again, a duplication of chapter 28 verses 31 through 34. But there are some minor alterations. They don't take away from the substance of what's going on, but there are some alterations. What's left out is um, the function of these bells. Do you remember what they were for? I mean, I, I, I get to, in my head, I think Christmas time, all the elf costumes, and they're walking around with the ch 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 and it just drives me insane. I don't think that's what's going on here. Why were the bells being used on the hem of the robe? In chapter 28, it says, if they don't come in with bells on, <laughs> they don't come in with bells on, they don't come in with bells on, they get struck down. Why? Well, culturally, uh, there was a, a kind of a, 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 a rule that you didn't come before the presence of the king unannounced. A great king, a greater announcement. You have God on his throne in the Holy of Holies. The high priest goes in without announcing his presence with these bells. That's disrespectful. There's a sovereignty issue there with these bells. We're not really given that here. We're told that in chapter 28, what, that they had to have them or, or uh, die. In 28, uh, verses 31 through 34. And then uh, verse 35 is left out in this section. This robe is worn under the ephod, and it's all blue. Why? What visually do you see all blue and an ephod over it, this intricately woven thing? It's artistic. It's simply beautiful. It's a backdrop for what to, to pronounce and to accentuate what's on the front of the chest of, of, the, uh, of the high priest. God loves beauty. It was very ornate for beauty. There it is. Sometimes things are just pretty. And we just leave it at that. All right, look at... Uh, Verse 29 through, or 27 through 29, coats, turban, and sash. They also made the coats woven of fine linen for Aaron and his sons, and the turban of fine linen, and the caps of fine linen, and the linen undergarments of fine twined linen, and the sash of fine twined linen, and a, of blue and purple and scarlet yarn embroidered with needlework as the Lord had commanded Moses, again, an abbreviated description of chapter 28, verses 39 through 42. There's no discussion of the function, just the manufacture. 
the coat was actually under the robe of the ephod. So you have the, the blue robe, and then this coat that he's talking about is under that, that, um, under that robe. Um, so from the outside, you have the ephod with a breastpiece, the robe, the blue robe, the ornate robe, and then the coat underneath. And then there's also a, a sash that's, we're told, that's a kind of girdle worn under the robe, but, but over the coat. Um, and then there's this linen underwear covering them, really at a level nobody sees. And yet, even down to that level, they're to wear specific type of clothing covering them. <coughs> if the priest failed to show modesty in serving God, uh, he would die. That was the command. Cover yourself. There, and that's a, that's a distinction between them and the other cultures around them that had a lot of fertility stuff, and a lot of nudity in their worship. God had uh, commanded them to be very modest in how they would do their worship. They worshiped God on his terms, not theirs, and the conventions of the culture surrounding them. So this turban was made, especially for the high priest, as a kind of crown, it says. Um, the other priests had caps, but nothing had the wow factor of the high priest's turban. It was, a, it was a crown. All right, look at verses 30 and 31. They made the plate of the holy crown of pure gold and wrote on it an inscription like the engraving of a signet, Holy to the Lord. And they tied to it a cord of blue and to fasten it on the turban above as the Lord had committed Moses. Again, it's a repeat of chapter 28, verses 36 and 37. And it ends here, on this plate. As a final statement of all the construction, it ends here. Holy to the Lord. Why is that, you say? What do you think? Why would that be? The whole thing, right? Not just the priestly robes, not just the priestly garments, but the whole tabernacle structure, the whole thing is set apart, holy to God. And the high priest has it emblazoned in gold on this holy crown that the term is used. The tent, the furniture, the people serving are set apart for his worship and his service. Okay. What do you do with this? <laughs> Nicely woven clothes, very comfortable linen, skills that they learned in Egypt. God is, is using, giving them wisdom to do it for His purposes here in the tabernacle. Why? What's the picture? Well, um, Christ comes as our great high priest. And when he comes, he bears the remembrance of his people before God on his shoulders. In Christ is hidden all the wisdom and knowledge and judgment. 
He wears righteousness like a robe. He is crowned with glory and honor. Yet, he lays down his beauty to bear the sins of his people. The incarnation of wisdom itself bears the scorn of being labeled a fool and murdered. He is stripped and exposed to shame for our sake. He who knew no sin was made sin so that we might be the righteousness of God. The one who was set apart for God because of the sin he bore for us was forsaken by God. But he didn't stay there. Now exalted, crowned with glory and might at the right hand of the Father, seated and ruling on the throne only he could fill, he is displayed for all to see as holy, beautiful, glorious. He's not given a beautiful robe. He is beauty. He's not given a glorious crown. He is glory. He's not given um, a statement of holiness. He is holy, start to finish. There's no separate robe that makes him holy. There's no linen that makes him holy. He is holy. And here's the thing I find amazing. If you trust him, if you're in him, he gives that to you. His robes of righteousness, his righteousness is worn as a robe for us. We who have trusted in Him are clothed with His righteousness. We who were hideous by nature are clothed in His beauty. We who were fools following the course of this world are given His wisdom. We who were under the wrath of God like the rest of mankind have been given His glory and seated with Him in the heavenly places that He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. The passage talking about the making of clothes. Why is it here? It's a picture, again. It's a type and shadow of what's coming. Christ doesn't need any kind of foreign anything. He is beauty. He is glory. He is holy. And then clothes us in Himself when we trust Him and Him alone. We put on Christ knowing that we're not beautiful, we're not holy, we're not glorious. But in putting on Him, that's declared for us because He gives us that to wear. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, Galatians 3.27. If you're in Him... You have Him. Holy, beauty, glory. And yet, most often, I don't, feel, I don't really feel holy. <laughs> I don't feel beautiful as God defines beauty. I, I don't feel glorious. But just like the priests had to dress themselves daily in robes that declared something that they didn't feel, and they, didn't, they, they weren't, we are called to put on Christ. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ to make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. 
We can't coast. We've got to put him on. We've got to daily repent of who we are, of what we engage in, and put on Jesus, our only hope of holiness, beauty, and glory. Um, and then one day, what has been declared, because Christ was enough, will be actual. For we will be made like Him, for we will see Him as He is, holy, beautiful, glorious. And we'll reflect Him, rightly, purely, in truth, rather than in declaration. And so as you struggle with the residue of your rebellion, and we all do it, I did yesterday, I, I fell into rebellion of gluttony at the Robertsons, and I, I woke up this morning just feeling the weight of that, and the scale telling me the weight of that. It was just, but we do it, and it's in stupid things, and in big things. We all do it. We fail. We fall. But we've been declared holy. We wear Him. We put on Him. And we have hope that we will be made like Him, for we will see Him as He is. Take hope that you don't struggle in vain. It's a good struggle. If you're struggling, thank God for the struggle that you want to put Him on. Those who are trapped in their own rebellion, just, I, I don't want to deal with that. I don't want to read my Bible. I don't want to pray. I certainly don't want to bring on other people of God who are going to hold me accountable. Right? If you're struggling, repent, but thank God for the struggle. It's from a heart that's been renewed, that's been declared righteous, that's made new in Jesus, and wants to be like Him and longs for that day when we will be made like Him, for we will see Him as He is. That's a hope that drives us to repent and strive and work because it's a spirit-wrought hope. So don't, don't be despairing because you're still struggling with sin. Trust Jesus that He's enough and that the struggle is good. It's a good thing to struggle. Pagans don't struggle. All right. Any, any questions, any comments? We, uh, we have a little bit left in chapter 39. Then we'll be doing chapter 40. We, we probably have maybe three weeks left, maybe four, possibly, if I do a wrap-up thing, in Exodus. And I looked last night in our um, in, in, in the lessons, of, and the first lesson we taught in Genesis 1 was August 22, 2010. That's just insane. Anyway, um, so yeah, we'll be finishing Exodus uh, just shy of five years from when we started Genesis 1. Stretch it out to five years. I could stretch it out to August, but I'm not going <laughs> to. Uh, anyway, very, uh, anyway, it's, it's, it's been a good study for me. I hope it has been for you. Um, uh, let's pray. Father, uh, it's a humbling thing, uh, these pictures that you give us. Again and again, we're just shown the, the immeasurable riches of your grace. I don't know a, a better way to say it. You humble us with your kindness. 
that you take rebels and change us to be sons, stones in your temple. Um, the, the only response is thankfulness. And, uh, and from thankfulness, working because you're working in us to, to be holy, to live lives that are set apart to you and not striving after the, the goals of the culture. Would you help us do that better? Would you help us to love one another um, with more intentionality and, and, and with more authenticity than we do right now? I pray that you continue to, to grow us in grace together, that we would look like Jesus, that we would be um, closer to the picture of Him day by day, longing for that day when you will wrap it up and will um, will call us again to yourself change us in your presence when he returns and we look forward to it long for it and are thankful for it in christ's name we pray amen